You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm Lewis Kornfeld, and today I'm talking with Lee Overtree, the founder and artistic director of Story Pirates. Lee, thank you for being here. Hello. It's nice to be here. Thanks. So uh, um, I want to get started for anybody who's unfamiliar. If you could just take us through the Story Pirates and explain what you guys do. Yeah, sure. Story Pirates was founded. uh, I co-founded it with a bunch of friends from college in 2003. And we've been around uh, just over 10 years now. And we take stories written by elementary school kids and we turn them into sketch comedy and musical theater and then we uh, using professional actors and then we perform them for the uh, kids who wrote them. So the process um, in general starts with creative writing workshops in classrooms. Mm-hmm. And those workshops can um, be anywhere from four sessions to six weeks to a year long residency with a classroom or a school in which we're teaching creative writing. And sometimes it's very open ended in terms of what the kids are writing uh, and sometimes it's a very specific, like a mystery writing curriculum or a character building curriculum or a story structure curriculum. Um, and we even get into stuff like expository essays uh, and science um, in terms of basically just using storytelling to teach uh, kids how to learn. Creative writing is sort of, you know, our sweet spot, but we go anywhere, uh, you know, under the theory that we learn best through storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so we use storytelling in the classroom, both with uh, improv and process drama, um, as well as actually writing the stories uh, and having kids write their own stories. Um, and then we take those stories back and we uh, bring them to our ensemble of actors, comedians, musicians, who then adapt them into a show where we bring them back to the school. Uh, and that show is a celebration of all the writing and creativity and learning that's been going on at that school. So that's sort of the basic story pirates process. We're based in New York and Los Angeles. Um, we have a few hundred actors at this point. Um, we do a lot of national touring. We have a Sirius XM radio show, uh, twice weekly. Um, and once a month live, uh, it's very exciting. We have our own podcast, the story pirates podcast, uh, made up of our favorite radio plays that we performed on Sirius XM. Um, all, all written by kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything written by kids. Uh, but we really see it as a collaboration between uh, our adult artists and the kids who are writing the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, all the all the performances are based on stories that kids have sent in to the radio show or sent in the Story Pirates or come from a classroom that we're working in. What... Uh, um What's the age range of the kids that are normally responding to you guys? I would say the sweet spot is K through five. Yeah. uh, Kindergarten through fifth grade. But we definitely go older than that. We definitely go a little bit younger than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've worked with middle schoolers, high schoolers, and the elderly. We've worked with all sorts of people. Um, But yeah, K through five. That's interesting. Is it the same basic process working with the elderly yeah it is the times that we've done that we have uh gone to some assistant living facilities Mm -hmm. and basically uh worked with the population there and and asked them what story do you want to tell and sort of help them get their story out on paper and then 
use that as a basis for a collaboration between artist and author. Does it tend to be autobiographical for them or more uh, fantastic? It's gone both ways. Yeah. Um, I would say we probably lean more autobiographical yeah. in those cases. Still musical sketch review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the show changes a little bit, obviously in that kind of environment. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, the principles are the same. That's, um, I'd love to, to talk about that for just a couple of minutes. Cause yeah. that's really fascinating. What, what, kind of effects have you noticed uh, in uh, uh, that population when you've been working with people? Because I imagine that's got to be um, a really fantastic thing for someone in an assisted living home. Sure. I mean, I think the number one thing you see in any audience, um, but and definitely this audience, you know, is validation. Yeah. You know, there's something very powerful about having an outside force come in and say your ideas matter. Yeah. Your stories matter. Your words matter. Um, they're interesting and special and unique enough to us that we as professional artists and actors and musicians have decided to put our brains on this, uh, and put our hearts into it and create a piece of theater, um, out of it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I, I think that's the number one thing is that validation that you get across the board, no matter what population you're working with, um, is pretty powerful. When you're working with kids in K through five range, um, whose sort of storytelling abilities aren't exactly developed yet, I imagine some of the contributions are yeah. are kind of on the weirder side. How yeah. do you how do you how do you help them develop that into something that can play in front of an audience and still protect the integrity of their intention? How do you how do you um, serve an idea that uh, uh, maybe isn't the most accessible to an adult mind? Well, I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't really look at the material we work with as anything other than um, completely finished, mm-hmm. perfect, exactly what the author intended. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we ask all of all of our actors and musicians to look at the material that way in terms of not how do we bring this story up to our level, but how do we meet this story right where it is? And how do we sort of like, if anything, there's like a deciphering of author intent sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think they are going for in this moment? What do they want to see on stage? And we try to meet that as best we can. Mm-hmm. So you might have a kid who doesn't have the words necessarily to express what we believe they're trying to express. And so sometimes we have to make a judgment call and, but that's why it's a collaboration, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It's not, we're not just building a house from a set of plans. We're creating art with these kids. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you do have to think, well, what were they going for here? Maybe they don't have the words yet in the vocabulary to really express what's going on here, but I feel that they mean this. Like, for example, I was just coaching some story pirate directors last night and we were talking a lot about implied scenes Mm -hmm. and an implied scene in our vocabulary is a scene that, uh, is implied within the text. For example, um, you might have a story that says something like there was an elephant and a bear and they hated each other, but then they learned that they had a lot in common and became best friends. Mm -hmm. That's great. You could perform that verbatim and just use the text from the story. And a lot of times we will do that. Um, and there's a 
you know, implicit humor in such a verbatim renderings mm-hmm. of, of text that is limited and sort of like almost Hemingway esque in its directness. Um, but, but there's also an implied scene there and there's probably several implied scenes in those like two or three sentences, mm-hmm. um, that are potentially very meaningful for this author. Um, cause it's not a small thing to hate someone and then become their best friend. Right. You know, there's a whole world of experience in there. Um, so when I read that, I think there is something going on below those words, deeper than those words that, that, uh, that child is trying to express. Um, and, and so when we're adapting it, we may, uh, play with it in that way and create new material and content that sort of supports that author intent. Mm-hmm. There's almost something um, kind of like weirdly biblical about that to me. <laughs> it, it, uh, um, there's a great uh, uh, book called The Book of Jay. Have you read this? No. By Harold Bloom. It, what, he tries to extract from Genesis and Exodus uh, uh, one particular author's voice because <laughs> I mean, you can find based on right. based on the different names of God that they use in the uh, Hebrew, yeah. you can see different voices working there. So he tries to extract this one particular voice who he thinks was the oldest, uh, uh, most archaic voice of Genesis. And it's written like that in one sentence, so much will be implied yeah. that it has almost a, a like a kind of like um, uh, uh, kindergartner sense of directness. To yeah. It. Um, yeah. And when you are, uh, working that way and when you look at a kid's story as if it is as vetted and important as say Shakespeare or Chekhov, you treat it differently. Yeah. And when, and our job is to support the point of view of the author. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's no other way to look at it. I think then this is, this is already perfect. This is the best text we could possibly come by. Yeah. Um, and we give it as much respect as we would any, any author, any famous author. Well, it's interesting because I would imagine that's what a lot of experienced adult artists are aiming for. Mm. You know, you grow up and you kind of learn ways to outsmart yourself. Mm -hmm. And I imagine a lot of people are aiming to try to recapture a kind of directness to what they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Have you, have have you experienced any changes in the perceptions of the teachers that you work with? Because I imagine, I don't imagine an awful lot of teachers approach their students from the point of view that what they're writing is perfect mm-hmm. and artistic and beautiful. I imagine a lot of it is corrective and teaching them how to develop. So have you been able to kind of open the minds of, of people in schools? I don't know if we've opened minds necessarily, but uh, I mean, I'm sure we have, but we definitely came at story pirates from a, angle originally of well who cares about spelling who cares about grammar Mm -hmm. that's not what's important expressions important um i call something i call desire drives learning Mm -hmm. which i think i probably read somewhere once but i can't remember where so i never cite where but um i say desire drives learning um because i believe strongly that you have to want to learn to Mm -hmm. be able to learn and and life I think is about sort of learning to love learning mm-hmm. and that's what school should be. And so I think the most important thing that story parts brings into the classroom is, uh, is desire for learning, mm-hmm. you know, like I can't wait to come to school tomorrow. 
And, and, and so I think that's, you know, when we started story pirates, we were, I think we were a little probably like, ah, school never does that. They're just like, you know, you know, always just like with a red pen correcting rather than building up and reinforcing, um, and validating and strengthening and empowering. Um, but you know, after so many years in the schools at this point, I'm so inspired by all the teachers out there that are working to do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and in my experience, most teachers are on that same page. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get into that profession without some sort of love for the art of teaching and, and you know, and the power of a connection between teacher and student. Of course, there are teachers out there that, um, you know, we come in the classroom and they're like, what is this? You know, I I'm busy. I have to, I have common core or I have, yeah, I have standardized tests next week. Like I don't have time for this. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of our residency, they'll say things, you know, the reason why we do expository writing right now is because some of those teachers said to us, you know what? I really hate teaching expository writing. Mm-hmm. I think that you guys could do a better job at it than I can. Um, and I'm, and I'm just sort of amazed by how, uh, intensely engaged my students are when you're in the room and you're able to get at concepts that are really boring usually, uh, and drive them home. Um, so, so we do see that from time to time. Um, but of course, you know, the system that those teachers are working in is, it's a really tough one. And, uh, I, I couldn't be a teacher. I'm glad that I'm a teaching artist (laughs) And not a uh, teacher because I think it would break me down pretty quick. It must be so frustrating to uh, see the kind of carelessness with which arts programs are constantly being defunded and cut down. Um, uh, Because it does sort of, it it seems like the logical place to stimulate people's interest in learning is their Mm -hmm. ability to be self-expressive and their ability to fun and create mm-hmm. something together that's fun and that's how you lock in lessons to your own experience mm-hmm. but cutting all of that out and making it all just rest on whatever grade you're being graded and moved on to the next thing it's all so abstract and intangible and impersonal it, it, that from a teaching perspective it's interesting i never really think about it i always think about it from my perspective as a kid hating school and and, yeah. and resenting my teachers but it must be incredibly frustrating for a teacher to sort of always be facing that uphill battle and always have your own system kind of stacked against you. Mm -hmm. Can you talk for a second about um, uh, uh, how you work with kids to teach expository writing? I'm curious how you guys uh, uh, apply your technique to that to make that fun. This is one of the most exciting things we've done recently, I think. Um, So I'll give you an example of a recent expository writing uh, curriculum that we did in the Bronx and we've done in Los Angeles as well. Uh, so you take a topic that the school is, they decide that they've been studying whatever. And they're like, Oh, we want the kids to learn about essay structure through this topic. In this case, it was the environment. Um, and so what we did is we brought in an actor into the classroom. Uh, we called him Scott Heartless, uh, played by, uh, most recently by the amazing Branson Reese. Mm-hmm. And Scott Heartless came into the school and he, you know, so we had our teaching arts in the school and we always teach in pairs and they're often like comic pairs, comic foils in the classroom. And so our teaching pairs, 
said to the classroom, like, we have this amazing special guest. We have an expert on the environment. Um, we went on Craigslist. We found this guy. He sounds amazing. He's going to come and speak to you guys today. And the mm-hmm. kids are like, okay. And so Scott Hartless comes in. He's wearing a suit. You know, he just looks like a total jackass. And Scott Hartless proceeds to tell the kids, uh, <laughs> I can't remember exactly, but I know in one version of this, he w- said something to the effect of, um, we need to turn, tear down this nature preserve um, because parking lots are like the way of the future. <sighs> and so he just gave this big speech and a really emphatic uh, explanation about why parking lots are great. And like, we can actually like help save the environment by building more parking lots on nature preserves because then we can charge for the parking spaces and raise some money and the kids just become enraged and can't believe this guy has this just absolutely ridiculous point of view. We call it uh, creating a rebellion Mm -hmm. and we do it frequently and we set up an authority figure that the kids want to tear down. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in this case, Scott Hartless uh, leaves the classroom and, you know, the teaching artists and the kids decide as a group, like we got to write letters uh, to Scott to convince him that his, he's a total idiot. Yeah. And so then we get into essay structure and the kids are motivated. Um, and we're doing that through storytelling and that's a, there's something called process drama. Uh, I'm not exactly an expert on it, but my, uh, education director is, uh, his name's Quentin Johnson. But as I understand it, process drama is basically just you storytelling in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, as a way to get at curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, that's one of the ways we teach expository writing. It's brilliant. It, it, um, it almost reminds me of professional wrestling in a way you're giving <laughs> straw man, you're giving a villain for everyone to boo and get really irate about and yeah. to get everyone really jazzed up and yeah. making them want to fight the good fight. It's right. a really fascinating psychology. Yeah. Uh, um, um, so I, I want to talk a little bit more about your guys' process, going back to yeah. uh, turning stories into performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, so starting sort of at the beginning of that, how do you select stories from the submissions that are given to you? Um, we select stories. So, you know, it's obviously there's a variety of ways in which we get stories. And so we're always getting different amounts of stories um, from different groups. You know, say we're doing like a mystery writing curriculum just with the fifth grade, I might get, you know, you know, a hundred stories that are all in this like specific mystery structure from all the fifth graders at that school. Or it might be a little bit more open-ended and the whole school submitted stories and they're about anything. So we got like kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade stories. Um, Or it might be like the radio show where we give a theme like um, last month our theme was make up your own holiday. And so whoever is listening that wants to send in a story can send them in. So it's really the way we choose stories is really specific to what the show's going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I'm performing in the first example, the mystery writing curriculum, I'm going to want to choose one from each class. I'm going to want to make sure I have an equal number of boys and girls. I'm going to want to make sure that the stories vary in a way so that they're not, all the same all in a row during the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and beyond that, you know, you collaborate with the teaching artists that were in, you know, if I'm the director of the story part show, I'll collaborate with the teaching artists that were in the classroom. Sometimes those teaching artists are actors as well. And sometimes they're not. So I'll talk with them and they'll say like, you know, this student could really benefit from seeing their story on stage. 
um, blah, blah, blah. So it's, you know, it's, uh, and beyond that, it's just what we connect to as artists and actors and directors and improvisers and adapters. Mm-hmm. So we're really coming at it from a space where we, we as artists want to be inspired as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that collaboration is meaningful. Mm-hmm. Are the actors themselves also taking a look through the material to find what they connect with, or is it something that kind of Typically, comes down from directors? It's the directors yeah. that are doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, just go back for a second to to like inspiring rebellion in the classroom. There's something so wonderful about that idea of of connecting someone's mind that early on in their life to the notion that uh, critical thinking and rebellion go hand in hand. <laughs> that you don't have to yeah. think of critical thinking as a form of conformity that has to be enforced. That's right. Uh, um, but it makes thinking exciting and it makes uh, uh, self-expression exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and the idea that you're putting these people in a position where where what's in their minds is connecting to these performing artists, it's just such, an, a, a, such a terrific like gift to give to people. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. I think probably our education director, Quentin Johnson, put that together. First and foremost, Quentin and I went to college together, and uh, I think, as everyone in college does, we, you know, there is a certain anti-authority impulse going mm-hmm. on, and the way Quentin merged that with, you know, our interest in education uh, is sort of brilliant to me. It's such a simple device, yeah, but you can apply it in so many different ways, uh, and it's an unending you know, source of, uh, engagement and energy yeah. for the students. Yeah. Well, cause that instinct to rebel is always going to be there always. And so to channel it for productive ends and to, to kind of like help set somebody's life course in a positive direction and not just have it be free floating, arbitrary rebellion against any perceived authority in a room. Right. I mean, it's really doing God's work. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Uh, um, um, so, I'm just out of curiosity because you, you work so often with texts that are such a direct expression of, of somebody's sensibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Are there any like examples that, that stand out to you of moments that you have been caught completely by surprise by, by what you're connecting with or have something that sort of like shook your thinking on what you were about to perform? Cause I imagine there must be some, some really fascinatingly original material coming out of these kids' minds. They write the weirdest, funniest, saddest, most interesting stuff you'd ever, you could ever find. And I mean, you know, as an actor, uh, an improviser, you know, writing is the hardest part. Yeah. I think as you know, and me as a theater artist, like that has always been very clear to me. Writing is always the hardest part. <laughs> I, I feel like almost anyone can act. Most people who can act can direct, mm-hmm. but almost no one can write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but these kids seem to be able to, they have this unfiltered way of expressing themselves that comes out right every single time. Mm-hmm. And so to be, a, I think what blows my mind the most is to be able to work with text that is so consistently good is very rare um, and very special. Yeah. 
um, from from a purely like writing standpoint, but also from like a comedic standpoint, I don't think adults are that funny because mm-hmm. they have so much uh, experience, so many filters. It's so hard to speak honestly and yeah. purely yeah. in comedy um, without having some sort of agenda or layering it with things that complicate the humor in ways that, you know, are just unhelpful. But kids are so unfiltered. They're so direct. They're so honest. They really get at, um, what is funniest, I think. So, Mm -hmm. so in terms of like specific examples, um, of times in which I've had my mind blown a little bit, um, I don't know. There's honestly, there's like 10 years of it in my head. It's a little bit hard to just to pull one thing out, but, um, yeah, I'd have to really, I'd have to like do a deep dive and think about that (laughs) because it happens every day. Yeah. Honestly, it's, uh, every reaction is, uh, that we get from a school or a kid is, you know, sort of special and pure. Yeah. And, and every story, if you're looking at it as if it is Shakespeare, every story is going to blow your mind. Literally every single one. Has that changed the way that you read in general? Um, it's changed the way that I write and the way I read. Yeah. Can you talk about how it's changed your writing? Um, I think the way it's changed my writing is to try to get out of my head and get out of my own way. Yeah. It's easier to do that when you realize that there is no version of intellectualizing writing that is going to be helpful. Yeah. Ultimately you can always come back to a piece of writing and revise and um, punch up with your head. Right. But if you don't start from a place of writing from your heart Mm -hmm. and impulse and, uh, then it's never going to be interesting or special enough to be worth reading. I don't think it, I find it's so hard um, to write and get comfortable with this idea of making a mess the first couple of drafts Mm -hmm. and sort of getting out nonsense that, and I, I doubt I'm in the minority on this, but I can only speak for myself as soon as you start writing, you begin projecting it out to this invisible audience yeah, in the yeah. future. And exactly. if you're really arrogant, you're, you know, to like the invisible critics in the future and what yep. people are going to say. And so it, it's just a series of these different filters coming up and you get further and further away from any, any connection to your own raw feeling about anything. That's right. I, going back to what you were saying about these kids stories being so weird and so sad uh, uh, and that that sense of directness, just that that you don't have an invisible audience in your head just yet, mm-hmm. and that you don't really think of it in terms of getting a mess on the page or something that's mm-hmm. embarrassing on the page. You just know how you feel and you say it outright. Yeah. Uh, uh, um. And so, so you're without even realizing it, you're kind of exposing people to to your kind of truth. And that's mm-hmm. a really interesting, like when you see something that like genuinely conveys the feeling of work of art to you, mm-hmm. 
Um, that to me is always one of the attributes of it, of this feeling of, I feel like I've been exposed to something about the people who made this. It's mm-hmm. more than just a well-crafted idea or something yeah. that's been meticulously produced. It, it, it leaves you feeling a little bit jarred because there is something so direct about the way another person feels and experiences the world that now has sort of like gotten into you somehow. Yeah. And that's why the best writing is actually, you know, it, you're giving something up as the writer. Oh, that's interesting. You're putting a piece of yourself out there. Yeah. And that's what I, I, what I hear from you when you say that is, uh, what you respond to is when you're like, Oh man, that person really like gave something up or like showed me something that was intensely personal. Yeah. Um, and that's true of, of comedy and drama and any genre really. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I think, regardless of what the effect is, whether it makes you laugh or, or however it makes you feel, the fact that you're feeling somebody else's feelings with them is the sort of hallmark of it. The fact that that it kind of makes room inside of you for somebody else's experience to kind of live with you for a little bit. That's right. the kind of like tangible takeaway. Whether it makes you feel really happy or whether it kind of makes you feel a little bit uh, uh, jarred or whatever, you know, that's an incredible thing to get to share someone's mind and heart with them. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not to say that sometimes kids aren't writing for the story pirates voice. Oh, sure. Which happens more and more and is, is actually really fun and exciting. Um, You know, they're not purely in a, like a world of like daydreams and unicorns where they're just like vomiting out on the page. But um, but yeah, for the most part, that filterless quality is what, is what I strive for as a writer. And it's very inspiring to get to see these stories all day long yeah. that have just that. Yeah. Well, that's just to backtrack for that to a moment, as you guys have gotten more and more successful and more and more recognized, uh, uh, are you finding ways in which your success is actually kind of working against the work that you're doing with these kids? For instance, trying to do an imitation of your voice and your style instead of their own perception. Absolutely. If we're in a school for a long period of time, um, when we come back, the stories all sort of like fit our style yeah. and our structure, which is really validating and fun. Yeah. Um, and doesn't make for a bad show. Uh, and ultimately like the downsides of that, I think are well, you know, counteracted by the upsides, which is that there's a culture of creative writing at the school. Yeah. You know, when the story pirates show up, kids think, oh, this is the time of year when we get to write whatever we want and we get to be silly and no one's going to sort of judge us for that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the radio show, a lot of times if we do a bit um, like the actors, if we are riffing and we come up with some bit, you'll start to see that in the stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you do get, as we became well, more well known, we get more kids like parodying our style and parodying our bits. I don't hate it just because, you know, sense of humor is learned in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so it is fun to see kids sort of picking up on bits yeah. and riffing with us yeah. in a way. Um, I mean, the radio show isn't exactly a completely like educational, uh, enterprise. So I don't mind it so much in there. Um, but that being said, we probably won't choose the stories that are just riffing on our riffs. Right. 
Yeah. It, it, I mean, I guess it's just inevitable that you learn by imitating. And, yeah. and once something jazzes you and you want to do more of it, you start to look to what inspires you and you begin imitating what inspires you. Yeah. I guess that's the learning process. That's how you grow up. Yeah. A lot of kids write. You know, we, we always tell kids, yeah, we don't want stories written about movies or TV shows or books that already exist. We want brand new original stories. But sometimes you have a kid who really, really wants to write about Spider-Man. Yeah. And and ultimately, we'll say, you know, we're not going to perform that story because Spider-Man's a character that is owned by Marvel. Yeah. Uh, I think. Sorry, nerds, if I got that wrong. No, I, who, um, who, but yeah, <laughs> but who knows uh, who owns anything? Yeah, anymore? I know. Right? It, 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 it's like five people own everything. Yeah, but um, but ultimately, we will. We're like, okay, if that's where your passion is, do that because you learn a lot about story structure yeah. by imitating. Um, I wrote I cause, and I I remember I wrote when I was a kid. I wrote this long sort of parody of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Narnia books, and. And I feel like I learned a lot about story structure doing that mm-hmm. and parody and comedy. Yeah. Can I, um, just going back for a second to, to looking at, at these submissions as if you're reading Shakespeare mm-hmm. as something that's already been born perfect into the world and mm-hmm. now just needs your attention, you know, for the next step. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're improvising, we talk a lot about suspending our own critical faculties and yeah. being in a very accepting non-judgmental place and yes and and all that stuff i find personally a struggle with that it, it it's easier to pay lip service to that idea yeah than it is to constantly find yourself in an open sense of embracing everybody mm-hmm. around you have you found working uh, um in education that that has has changed your perspective on that idea of letting go of criticism it's just really easy to do with kids. Yeah. It's way easier to do with kids than it is with your own ideas. Yeah. Um, or another adult's ideas. So yes, it has in that I have exercised the muscle of turning off, uh, that critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and seeing the benefits of it, Mm -hmm. of being able to focus purely on theatrical craft Mm -hmm. Um, and what's going on in the room with the actors and the text isn't unchangeable, mm-hmm. right? That's the key is that unchangeability. Mm-hmm. Like with Shakespeare, I, I guess obviously you can like make cuts and right. you can do whatever you want with it because it's so old, but there is an unchangeability. No one's going to say like, yeah, but that word, that's not the right word. Right. There's something sacred to the writing. They're like that word. You rather you're like that word's there for a reason. Right. What is it? Right. And even if it's not, just the exercise of being able to do that is really important. Um, I think in order to get everything out of uh, the experience that you're looking to get out of it. I mean, and improvising is writing and acting at the same time, right? Um, and it's impossible to do those two things at the same time. You yeah. have to you have to give up one at any one point. Yeah, I think has that influence your writing also the ability to suspend self-criticism for a chunk of time yes does that play into what you were talking about about a more of a sense of of freedom in your writing um yes and no Mm -hmm. i mean i think when i come back to my own stuff i'm just as self-critical but but i hopefully i mean maybe just talking about it right now i'll uh, be able to like exercise that muscle a little bit more yeah 
when I'm writing my own stuff. Do you, I, this is a weird question. Good. I'm, I, I'm, I'm already sorry for asking this question. Here we go. Permission th- to get weird. That's what we say in story pirates to lo- kids. That's great. Yeah. I actually, let me, I want to sidetrack for a moment about that too. <laughs> Cause this is something that comes up for me in improv classes mm-hmm. constantly. Uh, um, uh, uh, I've noticed that there's an arc in most improv classes, and I teach some of the earlier level classes, mm-hmm. where you're watching people's innate weirdness over time begin to kind of like peek its head through the surface. Yeah. There's a little bit of a process where you're watching people's armor kind of thaw out uh-huh. over the first few weeks, and then their own kind of like hidden weirdness uh, uh, begins to sort of emerge. And so much of the theme of the class is the idea that we're learning how to celebrate each other's weirdness, Mm -hmm. that instead of putting somebody down for what makes them different Mm -hmm. or unusual, that's exactly the thing that we love about them. And that in the characters that we're performing, that's exactly what we want to be seeing more of. And so there really is this thing of, it's almost like undoing the process of growing up a little bit where Mm -hmm. you learn to keep yourself tightly controlled and you learn to tuck away any of your specific unique perceptions of things because that's what's going to stand out and that's what's going to get you laughed at. Mm -hmm. So there's something uh, about celebrating these kids' weirdness and celebrating the integrity of what they have to say and celebrating their feeling that I can only imagine, and this is probably like way too broad and there's no way I'm sure that you could measure this or know this, but I can only imagine is like laying down the foundation for a slightly better future. (laughs) You know what I mean? I hope so. I mean, the way you just put that is so perfect uh, in terms of not encouraging people not to sound sand down their rough edges yeah, um, and stay weird. Yeah. Um, Because that's what's interesting. So many things are so boring. I'm tired of being bored. I want different, new, weirder stuff. Yeah. And kids do that naturally. Yeah. Especially if you encourage them to. Yeah, sure. Well, especially if you like protect it too by treating their weirdness as something that's worth mounting in like a fully realized production with professional actors and singers and dancers. When you see that there's real legitimate quality to what's floating around in your brain, I would imagine you have more of a sense of of ownership of what's inside of you. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you know, so much of like growing up is learning to compromise that and learning to kind of give away a little bit of your weirdness at a time so that uh, uh, other people are comfortable with you. Yeah, I also think that it has, uh, I mean, what you're saying is instructive in terms of the industry that we're all in yeah. here, you know, in New York or LA or wherever you are. I think the way we're trained in high school and in college, you try to fit yourself into a box uh, that you that you think people want, and you sand down those rough edges, and you become uh, more homogenized. And, and a lot of these schools train you to fit into a box, especially in music theater. I mm-hmm. think, and um, and then. I think most people's experience when they get into the real world and they start auditioning and they start going out and working is they realize they need to be totally different from everybody else. Yeah. And that is actually what's interesting. Yeah. But it's it, to, I think a lot of people go through that. You have that realization. It's like, Oh, wait a minute. I need to stand out. Yeah. And then you kind of manufacture your own difference <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. You know, like uh, uh, versus like just the legit, the openness and the honesty to be so in touch with 
your unique perspective and your feelings. And that goes back to my weird question that's yeah. probably unanswerable. Right. I, I have found uh, um, one of the struggles of adulthood is kind of not knowing how I feel about things oftentimes that I've internalized so many ways of thinking about things Yeah, that I have a hard time sorting out what's my genuine response. If you can even say that there is a genuine response to anything, what's my genuine response versus what's just layers and layers of received opinion Mm -hmm. that I'm trying to synthesize and work out and kind of come to terms with. Mm -hmm. And that as much as anything gets in the way of, writing genuinely interesting material because you find that there's just these echoes of voices in your work that are like, I don't know that that's me at all. So I'm curious if, if you've noticed a, if you've had that experience, you know, and B, if you have, uh, um, uh, uh, if you've gained any more insight through your work in how to kind of keep your ear to that third rail inside of yourself where you have a genuine sense of like, that's my, sad, weird, strange feeling on something. That's the thing that's kind of true for me that is at the core of what I'm writing right now. I don't know if that's too broad it's, and it's weird. It's not. It makes a lot of sense to me. And it, and it touches on things that I think about a lot. And I've been probably saying a lot around Story Pirates recently because it's something that I've, I think about on my own. I can only really speak for myself, but there is, in the last couple of years, I've noticed I've had the same issue uh, that you just described in terms of like, wait, how do I actually feel about this? What about how I'm reacting to this is just trying to sound smart um, or trying trying out an opinion mm-hmm, right. that is like circulating in my head that I may have heard somewhere? And what about it is actually real? How do I feel about what's going on now? Um, and I think about it as this as separating head and heart. Mm-hmm. Um and trying to get out of my head as much as I can and not just stop thinking. Cause no matter what I do, I'm always going to be thinking. Right. So I don't ever need to try to think more. Right. <laughs> I always just need to be trying to think less. That's interesting. And leading, uh, and leading from my heart. Yeah. And trying to come from a passionate place. Uh, and sometimes that's about sitting quietly and sometimes that's about taking extra time mm-hmm. before you respond to something. Um, and sometimes that's about cycling through what's going on in your head, getting all that out, and then taking a breath and trying again. Yeah. I, I, I don't, and this is, gets a little like hippy dippy, but for me, it's. A lot of it is about breathing and a lot of it is about like make sure I'm like staying in my physical body. Sure. Yeah. Uh, which can be easy to forget to do. It's hard to be in touch with your feelings if you're not actually feeling your body. Yeah. And and so I find like the second I work out, I exercise yeah. or I stretch or I lie down on the ground or I like rub my head, I'm back into like leading from my heart instead of my head. Yeah. Um, and then the rest just comes from experience in doing that, I yeah. guess. But yeah, I mean that, that is such a huge issue for me personally. I'm, I'm, I didn't think it was a weird question at all. Oh, good. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Uh, uh, um, yeah, the, 
your head has this interesting thing, and this is like the death knell of of any creative work. This desire for it to be important. Yeah. You know, and and there's a certain amount of thing in your heart, and this is kind of a hippie way of saying it, but like there's there's like an anarchy in your heart. It, uh-huh. You know, it has its own rationale for things, and it's less concerned with the importance of what you uh-huh. are experiencing, and more concerned with the genuineness of what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And your head gets so good at outthinking it and kind of uh, um, re-editing all of your experiences, you know, to kind of design it so that you end up saying something that will be seen as important or valid. And that to me, whenever I write anything that I have a sense of like, oh, this is important, I immediately have to throw it away Mm because I know it's garbage. It's absolutely inauthentic, (laughs) you know? Authenticity is a great sort of you know, another word for what we're talking about. And I think that's what people mean when they say, Oh, it's super authentic. Yeah. Is that it's all in heart and not in head. Yeah. And I I think that's, yeah, that's, it's what to strive. It's what to strive for. uh, The other thing I think about when I think about like leading from the heart is how much better I am at anything after like something real has happened. Mm -hmm. Like, and it can be, it could be anything from, um, getting a phone call that your grandmother passed mm-hmm. or it could be almost getting hit by a car yeah. on the way into the building. But suddenly you're like, your heart's beating. You're like in your body. You can't overthink it because yeah. there's no way to make sense of things like that. Um, And so stuff just starts happening. So I try to like manufacture those moments. Yeah. And it, it is like exercise of finding ways to be present um, because no one cares that you're smart. Yeah. Everyone's smart. Yeah. Everyone is like, we're all fucking smart, you know, like, but, and people don't go, I really don't think anyone goes to improv or theater to, to hear the next great idea. Right. Or to be like, that guy was so smart. They want to feel things. Yeah. That's why you do it. Yeah. If anything, you present that person a little bit for being obnoxious to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, they're above it. They're aloof. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because like in the moment when reality kind of kicks you in the ass, you, you don't always recognize the virtue of that. Mm-hmm. But there is something when you get a good hard slap uh, uh, that you have like a momentary thing where like that little door into yourself opens and everything just kind of immediately goes right into its correct perspective. And you have like a, a an actual insight into like, oh, that's me right there. That's right. exactly how I feel. Yeah. Before your brain starts manufacturing the story that you tell yourself on top of it all mm-hmm. over again. So like I, I, you talk about exercise as a way to ground yourself back in your body. I would mm-hmm. also imagine that like, being able to administer little tiny shocks to your system <laughs> self-awarely, you know, yeah. like whether that just be taking a different route to work or, or going out to get a drink with someone who you don't have much to talk about with something that puts you in a place where it's different and you're mm-hmm. not able to just continue on this like story that you're constantly manufacturing and cycling through over and over again. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that's a pretty good route into like having to confront feelings that are inside this is another thing that i've been thinking about a lot recently actually is like when you're younger every new kind of stage of life that you enter carries with it certain new feelings that you haven't really grappled with yet and that are unexpected and there's something kind of dramatic and exciting about 
having to come to terms and having to measure yourself up against these new feelings. Mm -hmm. And the older you get, the less new feelings you have, unless it's like something really horrible, like a death (laughs) in the family, you know, but like, and I wonder how much of that is that you actually don't have new feelings or how much of it is you become so well versed in your own history that you're able to translate anything that seems new into what you already perceive. Uh, You know what I mean? That's interesting. That's, I think one of the reasons why, again, like getting a little bit too broad and a little too hippie, but one of the reasons why it's so attractive to, to experience art in general is because there is sort of a moment where you know that you're reckoning with this other person's sensibility Mm -hmm. and you are having to come to terms with a feeling that isn't necessarily your own and measuring yourself up against it. But what do I know? I mean, the irony of all this conversation is that we're getting super heady. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So let's switch tack for a second. So (laughs) one, one thing uh, uh, I was talking with our producer, Evan uh, earlier today about this that story pirates are are um, uh, well known or well liked for is a, a, a huge sense of easiness and likability among the performers that people get along and they communicate a spirit of generosity. Oh, that's really nice to hear. Yeah, uh, um, I'm curious. Like in terms of casting and directing people, uh, um, what do you look for? Where where are you coming at from that perspective? Um. We, we, I am really proud of the group that we've put together. And for the most part, I think it is a really generous, open, easy group. Um, when we're casting, we're looking for specific skills. We're obviously looking for really funny people. Um, we're looking for people who are, can help contribute to a diverse group. Um, you know, we started as, uh, 12, you know, like white kids from Northwestern university. Mm-hmm. And ever since we started, we've been trying to expand that, um, to include people from all different walks of life. And so that's always a huge concern for us. Um, but I can't say it's hard it's hard to say like what contributes to the fact that I think we consistently cast awesome, nice people that you want to be around. Um, but I guess what it is that we do is when we audition, we just recreate our normal process and we adapt a story with them. Mm-hmm. So we, so we get a chance to work with them. It's not about like, all right, your chance to show us your skill. We actually just make a story with them. Mm-hmm. So we get to see what it's like to be in the room with them. Who's fun to be around. And again, I think that, uh, you know, our casting director, Peter McNerney, who is I'm sure well known to the magnet audience. Yes. Um, what Peter has taught me about the casting process is very similar to what we were just saying is like, get out of your head. Mm -hmm. Who do you like? Yeah. Who, what? And we, we have a very, uh, instinctual process around casting where we get to, we get to sort of say like, um, without talking about it, without thinking about it, everyone gets a chance to sort of be like, where, where, where do I lean instinctually? Mm -hmm. Do I want? And, and so the way I think about casting now is like, who am I drawn to, Mm -hmm. you know? And it doesn't have to be anything more than that. Like who, and, and oftentimes it has to do with like, who's having fun in the room who's relaxed, like 
who, you know, and it, but it always just comes down to like, who do you want to look at? Yeah. Is it kind of a thing of like, also like who makes you feel comfortable? Who sets yeah, you at ease? Absolutely. Yeah. Which is obviously a, such an unfair thing. Well, yeah. To say in an audition, like you come in and make me feel, cause auditions suck. They're so terrible yeah. for the most part. So we try to create a really warm room. Um, but yeah, I mean, people that are comfortable in their own skin is hugely, hugely, um, you know, endearing. That's uh, auditions do suck. And they're, they're like an oddly irrational process in a way. It's so irrational. It has nothing to do with reality. Yeah. And it's very hard to measure it. Like, especially when people's feelings are hurt after an audition, which is inevitable and impossible Mm -hmm. to avoid. You can't really concede to like fairness because there's nothing particularly fair about it. It really is this more intuitive thing of you just kind of sense another part of this organism that this will person will assimilate into this larger body. Yeah. It's about what happened specifically in that room during those 15 minutes or whatever. It has to do with what's going on with me today. Yeah. It has to do with what's going on with you today. Yeah. And you're rarely going to see somebody at their best in those 15 minutes. You never are. So it's this weird combination of all those chemistries. Yeah. Wrong people get cast all the time because yeah. it's a totally imperfect process. Yeah. But you can only, you can't, I believe strongly, like you can't go off of information that's not in front of you. Mm-hmm. Like one person would be like, oh, I really know this guy. Like, he's actually much funnier or like this person's awesome. Be like, that doesn't matter. What matters is like, how did we feel about it? Yeah. And that's all you can go on. Yeah. It's totally imperfect. Yeah. No one should ever feel bad about not getting cast in anything. Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. And it's actually just to get heady again. Sorry. I apologize. It's all right. Suspending criticism to accept a text that's in front of you as being perfect as is and, and ready for production. And then also being in the room where you have to make those kinds of critical decisions Yeah, uh, uh, where you do have to be selective and you do have to be judgmental. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting balance between those two. Uh, um, uh, I was one wondering if you could comment on that because it, it, you know, I, I'm responsible for casting certain things as well. And, mm-hmm. and there is a, that irrational thing of there are certain people that just kind of speak to you in a way. There's yeah. something about what they do that kind of, I watch certain people on stage and my imagination sort of turns on and follows them. Yeah. And there's certain other people who are great and really funny, but my imagination doesn't. And part of it is this sort of accepting thing where I find I'm trying to be open and non-judgmental and just experiencing what's in front of me. And then after a certain amount of the experience, my critical brain then turns on and starts making selections. Mm -hmm. I have yet to come to terms with the relationship between those two things. I'm curious what your experience is. I don't know. Just hearing you talk about it right now, it doesn't feel any different than the separation between writing and editing, Mm -hmm. you know, or acting and writing uh, that we spoke about. It's a muscle. You do have to be open. And when I'm in the audition room, just like if I'm watching a scene, uh, I try to turn my brain off entirely mm-hmm. and be present and just like see, try to feel like what's coming in. 
you know, because if you the second you start thinking, the second I start thinking, I stop. Um, I stop feeling. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you're doing it sounds to me like you're doing it right in that when the person's in the room, just try to be with that person mm-hmm. uh, in the way that you try to be with any human, which doesn't mean you're always going up to the audition table and like making eye contact. Right. You know, the way some people do. Um, I just touch everyone on the shoulder <laughs> exactly. for three minutes and we share an <laughs> exactly. intimate moment. Yeah. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean like uh, stop thinking. Yeah. Stop acting. Just be yourself. Cause you are enough. Yeah. Um, something again that I heard somewhere. I don't know where I heard it, but I say it all the time to actors, which is you are enough. Mm-hmm. Just be yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the oldest it's the oldest uh, message in the book, right? Yeah. It's just be who you are. That's it. Yeah. I want to talk really quickly about uh, uh, you are along with Story Pirates. Yeah. You are the co-writer and the director of Found the Musical, which recently mm-hmm. went up at the Atlantic Theater Company. It did. I just want to read uh, one thing that was said in the Village Voice about the show. Ooh. Uh, that, about you specifically, someone who uh, uh, is used to adapting unconventional material. Yeah. Curious, uh, um, if you can explain how Found the Musical came about and sort of, uh, um, uh, uh, well, I guess first, if you can explain what Found the Musical is. Yeah, Found is a musical uh, based on Found Magazine, which mm-hmm. is a collection of notes and letters, post-its, postcards, Polaroids, a lot of alliteration going on there, um, that people have found on the ground all over America and they send into this magazine. Mm-hmm. So it's a hilarious magazine. It's a sad magazine. It's very raw. Um, it's great. And so we adapted that into a musical. And it started as a Story Pirates project, actually, hmm. where we put up, I don't know, maybe like a hundred different sketches over the course of a few years. Uh, and we adapted them the exact same way we adapt Story Pirates material. We take the found notes and we... Uh, treated them like Shakespeare Mm. and we turned them into these short sketches and these short songs. And so that's the way found started. And then that sort of like ran its course and we decided that it would make sense for it to be a book musical, like a traditional book musical like you'd see on Broadway or off Broadway. And, and so then it sort of transitioned out of being a story pirates project and became more of like a writing project between me um, and Eli Bolin, who's the music director of Story Pirates, and then um, my writing partner, Hunter Bell, on Found, who wrote uh, a musical called Title of the Show, mm-hmm. uh, which is amazing. And and then it became sort of uh, more traditional in that way. What were, as it was evolving and growing, what were the sort of criteria that you were using to kind of like direct it into something slightly more traditional? Like what different iterations of a, of a structure did you go through before you arrived at the set piece? We, we probably went through two or three different structures for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause we had this interesting thing where we had these pieces, some of which were developed with story pirates and some of which were not that were distinct notes. Right that didn't follow a through line narrative. And so what we needed to do was reverse engineer a narrative Mm -hmm. that could uh, house all of that material, which is very disparate in terms of tone um, and the way it was functioning. And, you know, in a typical musical, 
the songs will push the for the story forward. Uh, and that's important because you don't have a lot of like book scenes or like dialogue scenes in mm-hmm. a musical. There's just like not a lot of real estate because music takes up so much of that. And so the music has to push the story forward. But in found our songs weren't necessarily pushing the story forward because our songs were like, here's a note about this. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have a full musical number that had nothing to do with what was going on. So we had to reverse engineer a story that we could map all these different things onto. And we probably did two or three different ones before we hit on, you know, what ended up being like the simplest answer that Mm -hmm. we, that we steered away from in the beginning purposely. We came back around to the simplest idea, which was to base it on the people who actually started the magazine. There's a real guy named Davey Rothbart who started found magazine. He's a correspondent for this American life. He makes documentaries. Amazing dude. He's an author. Uh, we sort of just based around him and his friends and we ended up interviewing those guys and getting a lot of material from their lives. Um, and then, and then sort of like putting it through our own personal fuzzy pumpers and, and what came out the other end was like a dramatic structure. Yeah. I love that, that you discard an idea early on and then you come back to it at the end. It's like, Oh, that was perfect. Yeah. It's so, it's so part of the part of the deal. You yeah. gotta go down so many, bum roads before you can find the right one yeah mike nichols just passed away recently and and one of the anecdotes i was reading about him was when they were just about to open second city for the very first uh cast um paul sills had a panic attack right beforehand (laughs) because it was just unrelated sketches in a review format and he realized that this doesn't make sense and nobody's going to like it and they didn't know (laughs) what to do and so they closed the show and they tried to develop a narrative around it and connect everything thematically they got completely lost and so they flew mike nichols in from new york to take a look at a preview to ask his advice and his advice was and just do what you're doing yeah looks great i mean i'm i'm certain that there are people out there who think that our sketch version of found is better than the one with the narrative on it yeah um, and I'm sure in some ways it was, um, but yeah, it's, it is funny. Like I, I struggle sometimes because like first choice, best choice is like one way to look at sure. art and writing and creativity. And, and then another way to look at it is first choice is the most obvious, most boring choice. Yeah. Like what's the second choice? What's the third? What's the fourth, the fifth? Yeah. And it's always, I feel like a push and pull between those two ideas. You know what I like about that though, is if it was first choice is always the most alive yeah or if it was always no it's the third idea that's actually the non-cliched one yeah it would take all of the juice out of creativity it's 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 the fact that you can't quite it'd be too easy you can't get it into a formula exactly there are certain principles that tend to be helpful and there are certain things that you return to over and over again that tend to to uh, uh, rattle your thinking a little bit and make you a little more honest. Mm-hmm. But ultimately it never works every single time. That's yeah exciting. It keeps you hunting. Yeah. And again, it's like, it's our brain's job to try to find structure and chaos. Yeah. Creativity is total chaos. Yeah. So all those maxims just exist out of like our impulse to please, can we make sense of this crazy world that we're trying to live in? But the truth is, you know, they, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. The Overtree. Thank you for talking. Thanks for having me, This Lewis. was a pleasure, man. Yes, of course. Uh, thank you guys for listening. A couple of other thank yous to our engineer, Grant Goldberg, to our producer, Evan Barton, and to you guys, as always, for listening. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. 
Magnet Theater Podcast is brought to you by the Magnet Theater Training Center, where we offer classes in improvisation, sketch comedy, storytelling, musical improvisation, all of the wonderful things that your heart could desire. Uh, we have classes going on all the time. If that sounds like something that you'd be curious to try, if you think that would be fun, and I promise you, it's the most fun you've ever had. Check us out. Uh, we offer some wonderful free introduction to improvisation classes several times a week. You can find it all about those free intro classes, as well as everything else that we offer on our website. Magnettheater.com is the name of that website. Once again, free intro classes. Magnettheater.com.